Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theodina Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. Hi. How's the clematis you planted last week in a kind of mad effusion of optimism <laughs> survived the snow? Well, I, I mean, I did look at it and think, you poor thing, and I'm sorry. Though it is supposed to be winter flowering. It's all oh, is it? right. Yeah, but it's 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 all right. It's got it's it's a bit broken. It's a bit sorry for itself. Um I got I got carried away. <laughs> but <thanks laughs> I hope you've asking. learned a lesson from this. Well like, no probably, optimism. <laughs> probably not. The the one thing I did um this week um bearing on what we've talked about um before is I read another Cazalet. So oh, did got, you? Yeah, I did. So you I got, got confusion. To, I got confusion. The book, not the state, though the state <laughs> may also. well be, yeah, inherent. Um, and uh, and I finished that one, which is the one which is mostly set during the war, as it happens. Mm. Um, and and I think you know it's 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 really wonderful. And also, I just I I you, I, I can't wait to finish it. But everyone's mm. having such a bad time. I'm not sure mm. I'm enjoying it. Do you know what I mean? And also now you've you've reached beyond because there are five books, so you've reached beyond the halfway point now that you're at the end of the third. Is there a sort of melancholy creeping in now as you know you're on the downhill slope? Very much so. And also because. Um, because you know a lot of people are having a really bad time and i was struck actually in it um partly because we're going to there's a, we're going to talk about antisemitism aren't we a little bit later on the podcast there's a there's a bit about it in the book so there's not there's hardly any politics or anything about the war that's kind of going on in the background but there are a few bits right at the end which deal with the camps and the the dawning realization with the, of what's been happening and they're very strong Mm. that it's a it's a it's like being punched in the gut which it should be mm. um and and it's and it's difficult to read uh, and i thought actually i haven't read that very much in fiction mm. really yeah. and especially since it's a milieu that that wouldn't necessarily have paid much attention to it and then they they have to and you know they they meet a couple of people and talk to a couple of people and the horror of it is really brought home isn't it mm, yeah exactly and as you say because it's sort of it's embedded in in a book that doesn't otherwise necessarily deal with that and there's so much there's so much chatter in the book it's such a multi-vocal voice that it's quite it's quite a loud book there's a lot of chatter yes. going on and then all of yep. a sudden you get these 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 glimpses of of the world beyond uh, beyond England, beyond Sussex and London, which is where most mostly think the uh, events are set. Mm. Um, so, book four, you need to see about getting your hands on that one now. Okay, that's my that's my <laughs> aim. Right. Well, coming up on this week's show, a few things to consider watching or listening to when you're not reading the Casale Chronicles, from a food podcast made with eaters rather than foodies in mind, to a French comedy drama about actors and their often exasperated agents. 
We'll also have a clip from a conversation between the writer and comedian David Baddiel and our politics editor Toby Lishtig, in which they discuss Baddiel's book Jews Don't Count, the premise of which is that while people are fighting the good fight against discrimination in its many forms, most of them appear to overlook one of the most persecuted minorities in history. But first, the Peruvian writer Mario Vargas Llosa, a titan of Spanish language literature, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, has a new book out, which would be an event in any case, but seems all the more so given the book's surprising subject. One could, on first glimpsing Medio Siglo con Borges, half a century with Borges, be forgiven for incredulity. Mario Vargas Llosa publishing a book on Jorge Luis Borges, surely no two writers could be more different. So writes David Gallagher, the Chilean ambassador in London, who has reviewed Vargas Llosa's volume alongside another alleged encounter with Borges, note the emphasis there on alleged, by the American writer and critic Jay Perini. And David Gallagher joins us on the line from Chile now to tell us more about these literary meetings. Hello, David. Well, thank you very much. Very good to be on this program. Um, well, I always thought that, that um, it was intriguing to have Mario Vargas Llosa write about uh, Borges. Borges was always very rude about um, novelists. He, he thought that uh, novelists took far too much time to say things that one could summarize in a few sentences. Borges sometimes uh, summarizes imaginary novels, which, um, uh, which he thinks up. And he, that, that's his, the closest he gets to, to novels. And he, he always said that he didn't really read novels um, Particularly, he didn't read novels of his contemporaries because he thought that his contemporaries were, were too much like him. So here is the, the, the great Latin American novelist, Mario Vargas Llosa, writing about this um, great Argentinian writer who was sort of hostile to, to, to novels. So that, that I thought sort of rather intriguing. Well, and it's true that, I mean, you, you say, so Vargas Llosa is interested in philosophy. At, you know, Borges' stories and, and, and fragments, they're cerebral puzzles, and they delve into these philosophical conundrums. And Vargas Llosa is himself interested in philosophy in his essays, but not in his novels. So there's this kind of double uh, dis disjuncture almost. Um, so where, in what way do they meet? Because th this is a sort of 60 years in the making book, isn't it? That's right. It's starting in, in, in the 60s. And what, what, um, what Vargas also tells us was, was that he, he, when he was in Peru, he uh, was a very young writer. He was very much under the aegis of, um, of Jean-Paul Sartre and the idea that writers had to be committed, socially committed, politically committed. Uh, but he was intrigued by, by Borges's reputation. So he started reading Borges at night when nobody could uh, see him, sort of clandestinely, and he became fascinated. And, and, um, and what he says is one of the first things that really struck him was uh, Borges's prose style. Borges writes a, a, a much um, simpler Spanish than was normal at the time. And, and um, and this is a rather good quote in, in, um, in by Vargas Llosa. He says he says that the work of our great prose writers, beginning with Cervantes, are like firework displays in which each idea is placed in a parade led and followed by a sumptuous court of butlers, gallants, and pages, who are there for pure decoration. Whereas Borges goes to to the core of what he's trying to express and shows that Spanish can be used to discuss complex concepts in a way that Spanish hadn't been able to do before. That wonderful way of describing uh, the use of language matches Borges's own excellent descriptions of how language uh, is used. Another quote that you have in your piece, he said, and this is Borges now, he says, uh, he, wa uh, he once wrote that Spaniards love synonyms because they allow for a change of noise without the effort of a change of exactly. idea. <laughs> Right. Um, another thing that's quite um, that's that's very interesting, intriguing, even on the on the note of of, of language and how uh, Borges kind of reshaped the Spanish language or turned it to his own uh, ends is is the notion that there should be some English influence. So that's interesting. It's not as culturally self centered as it as it might at first sound, is it? Well, I think that I mean, you know, I mentioned that Borges reads very well in English translation, and I think that tells you something. He was brought up pretty well bilingually. I mean, he was also, he, he knew a lot of French. And so I think the influence of, of, of English is quite quite strong in, in, in his um, 
prose. I was um, reading about his own because, as you say, he was brought up. It was his grandmother, I think, wasn't it, who was English, and he was brought up speaking English and studying and reading and writing English. And I found um, someone had asked him how what books he would put in his his own personal library because he was so you know because he was a librarian and he did the Library of Babel, and so someone came up with this. And you know, I suppose you never know how serious he was in any of these answers. But he did he did give a lot of um, examples of books, and but the, the English language ones I was struck by. It's very sort of high Victorian, early Edwardian. It's Jack London and H. G. Wells and Chesterton and Kipling. It's very um, it's rather kind of gothic and and old fashioned. I was very surprised by that. Well, that's that's exactly right, and I mean I think that that, that they were the books that were uh, given to him by his uh, grandmother and by his English uh, governess, or uh, and one gets the impression that he's, he he really uh, he read an enormous amount when he was uh, when he was very young, and then then probably read quite a lot less. So he's very out of date in his reading. I mean he he. Um, I mean, I don't think he's just um, uh, pulling a fast one. I mean, it's really true that that, that, that is his, um, mm. what he most read. But it just, it sounds like a, a rather old-fashioned list from someone who was doing something so new and so unlike all of the things that he's describing. Exactly. No, it, it's, it's true. So how did these two men who were in many ways quite different, I mean, one was a precursor of, of, of the other, but um, more than anything, how, how is it that they overcame I mean you know one of them disparages novels the other writes them one of them is is very much in a kind of a realist vein Vargas Llosa is compared to Borges how did they how did they come together and what kind of relationship did they have what was their rapport well I I, I can only go by the um by, by by this book I mean I think um Vargas Llosa was an enormous admirer of Borges met him a few times and um and read him avidly, and, and um, it's unlikely that Borges would have written read Vargas uh, Llosa because um, you know he simply didn't read novels. Borges was always a, um, a colossus of, of Latin American literature from 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 the sixties onwards, and I think that um, probably a lot of Latin American novelists were influenced by him. I mean, you know, I'm quite sure that Garcia Marquez was was influenced by him. And there are certain scenes in um, in a hundred years of solitude, which um, which one could describe as a homage to Borges. The way that um, that the whole of Macondo in a hundred years of, of of solitude disappears when on the last page of the novel is a sort of homage to um, a story by Borges called um, "The Search of Averroes on, on the. Um, when when he stops uh, writing, everything that surrounds him, including the, the Guadalquivir River, disappears. It was quite influential. I mean, it was certainly taken up by Garcia Marquez. I mean, I think that that uh, Borges was, was so good, really, that, that nobody could not read him. Two diamonds in the kind of display of, of essays and, and articles and, and a poem in, in this collection by Vargas Llosa are interviews. The first was conducted in the 60s and the second 20 years later, I think, not long before Borges' uh, death. Uh, the descriptions here sound so rich and moving of, 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 of going to Borges' apartment in the 1980s. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful description because um, you know that that apartment has been written about by other people. Um, you know, Vargas also has this wonderful novelist eye, and he you know he notices things which um, which other people didn't notice. So um, uh, he finds Borges in a, in, a, in a suit with a tie, and, and um, imagines Borges is 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 like that, dresses like that in his apartment, even if he's not visited by anyone. Which I think is, I'm sure, is right. And then he goes into Borges's bedroom. He uh, he finds that Borges's bed is a narrow bed, rather fragile-looking bed, which he describes as being like the bed of a child. And um, he notices on the wall um, a Peruvian decoration, which is the Order of the Sun, um, hanging on the wall. And any Vargas Llosa would have known what that decoration was. So he asked Borges about it. Why, why do you have that? And, um, and Borges you know, explains that he was given this uh, 
decoration by, um, by the Peruvians. And he was very proud to receive it because his um, great grandfather's ancestor, Colonel Suarez, had received it for leading a cavalry charge in the Battle of Junin in 1824. So he's terribly proud to receive this decoration which his ancestor received. The description of the books that Borges has, which I, which I thought quite, quite, quite amusing. I, I don't think I was, when, when I went into that apartment one side, I don't think I was nosy enough to, to peruse the books on the bookshelves. And, and um, in, the, in the main bookshelf, not all that many books for a start, nothing by Borges himself and nothing on Borges. I mean, I must say that reflects quite well on him, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it does, actually, absolutely. I mean, I've seen uh, writers... Um, bookshelves full of um, 30 translations of their latest novel, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, um, and, and, and Borges, certainly, I, I know, never read anything um, written about him. Well, you say that he, he used to really dislike being spoken to about his own work. He, he had a it used to make his, you know, his his hackles go up almost to be to have to talk about his his stories and have people pick them apart. Yes, him. I think I think he, he he found that very boring, and but he was probably a bit flattered. You never know, but but he was really rude to anyone who who um, tried to inter- interpret a story. I mean, he would say something like, "Oh, that's extraordinarily interesting. I never thought of that." And did he? Yeah. Did, did you witness some of this, David? Well, I did. Yes, yeah, because I was. Uh, I, at a time when I was lecturing Latin American literature at Oxford, I was, I was going to do a book on Borges. And I spent quite a lot of time in Buenos Aires um, digging up things which, which hadn't made book form and so on and, and talking to him. And, you know, um, I, I would be tempted to interpret some story for him. <laughs> I very quickly learned that, um, you know, I was, I was just inviting some rude uh, repost. <laughs> um, I mean, so I mean, it's, it seems it seems safe to uh, say that you you recognise you recognise Borges in in Vargas Llosa's portrait quite strongly. Uh, does he capture the the tricksiness that you yourself witnessed in Oxford when you when he came to visit? You tell a, you tell a great story. Perhaps you could tell it again. Yes. Well, um, when he came to Oxford for honorary defil, which we we gave him at Oxford. He would not recognize any individual. So, we, we, um, uh, Robert Lowell had been very keen to be with Borges because he'd actually taken Borges around Harvard a few months before. So, when, when, when uh, they're about to have dinner together, or we're about to have a, a, a dinner with, with, with both of them, um, we introduce um, Robert Lowell to, to Borges, saying, Borges, this is Robert Lowell making allowances for his blindness, and, 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 and Borges looks black. And so we then um, say, well, the, the American poet... You have to add his type. <laughs> well, Borges starts to recite Walt Whitman. So that, 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 How awkward. <laughs> he knew perfectly well who Robert Lowell was, because Robert, <laughs> Robert Lowell... Uh, I know that he knew who Robert Lowell was. And you know, then the same thing happened with, with Iris Murdoch, who was at the party. I mean, you know, we, we invited the great and the good of Oxford to to um, to, to meet Borges, but but he wouldn't he wouldn't recognise the individuality of anyone, and, and that, that he's in a mischievous mood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, it's um, well, one had to know that when one got accustomed to it. Um, it's sometime just before this episode that you've just uh, recounted, this episode in Oxford, um, which definitely did happen, uh, that the trip at the heart of Jay Perini's uh, curious contribution, let's say curious for now, apparently took place. Um, what's going on here? What, what's going on in this book? It's it's quite baffling in a way. It's, it's, it's an incredible book. I, I had read The Last Station, um, which was a book that Jay Perini wrote about the last year of Tolstoy. I mean, which made a film, which which I think you know, a lot of people saw, and it was a very good film. And and um, but he called that a novel. Okay, so um, whereas this book, he 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 doesn't doesn't cast as a novel, but more as a as a memoir. So uh, what happens? Jay Perini goes to um, to St Andrews to do a doctorate in in, in St Andrews on a on a Scottish poet, and and. Um, he becomes uh, friendly with Alistair Reed, who, who um, 
translator of Borges, who, who lives um, in St. Andrews. And Alistair Reed becomes a sort of mentor of, of his. Jay Perini doesn't know who Borges is. And anyway, Borges um, arrives and Alistair Reed suddenly rings Jay Perini up and says, look, um, I've got this um, friend, a sort of great uncle who's um, not terribly well, so I have to go to London. Could you look after Borges? It won't be more than a week or so. And that seems incredibly, it seems so improbable. I mean, I, um, well, you know, I mean, I, uh, Borges, Alistair Reed is a very good translator of Borges, and I, I knew him pretty well. And um, I just simply cannot imagine Alistair Reed um, leaving Borges with a student he'd only met two or three weeks before. But, and what, what what apparently happens is is then the two men, uh, Jay Perini and Borges, get into a, a, a series of, of uh, train planes and automobiles and, and, and have all sorts of adventures in the Highlands. Again, it's it's increasingly sounding increasingly unlikely. Well, exactly. I mean, Perini has a really ramshackle car which he shares with another, with another student, and Borges said, says to Perini, "I'd like to see the Highlands." So off they go. Borges is um, supposed to be Don Quixote, Perini is Sancho Panza, and, and the car is um, Rocinante, the, the, the horse that um, Don Quixote rode. And they go, go on this adventure uh, through, through, through the highlands. I mean, they, they, uh, they get to Inverness because uh, Borges wants to meet um, Mr. Singleton, who's an expert on Anglo-Saxon literature. Um, and he has the address in Inverness, but it turns out to be in Inverness in New Zealand. Then um, Borges, who, who practically didn't drink at all, I mean, he might have taken a sip of wine, has three pints of beer in a pub. And then they, 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 they spend the night in a sort of bed set where, where Perini and Borges share a bed, which I mean, you know, I think is a bit very extraordinary, and, and, and Borges obviously has to get up in the night every, every, every five minutes because he had so much beer, and he, the bathroom is in the, the, the um, sort of rather dour landlady's um, bedroom. Borges um, charges into the wind, quoting King, King Lear and falls, and... and, and um, is unconscious and has to spend the night in hospital. And, and, and I suppose all, all of this, all of all of this, would be, you know, one thing. I suppose if if it were if it were being framed as fiction, but the, it isn't. And the suggestion of a of a legal dimension coming in, perhaps on publication. Well, uh, Borges's widow has been very litigious, and and um, she sued um, uh, an Argentinian writer who. who who did an expanded version of El Alif, which is um, the story of Borges is about a, space, a point in space which contains all, all, all the rest of the space. I think that, the, you know, to be fair to Perini, I mean, I think he makes a lot of, um, the, the claims he makes are so outrageous that I, that, that I think he's, he's teasing the reader. I assume he is. I mean, I, I, um, Perhaps it's supposed to be a kind of, Borgesian prank. Well, exactly. That's right. And, and you know, he keeps on quoting Borges's um, belief that the, 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 the line between reality and fiction is always necessarily extremely thin, assuming there's any line at all. So he gives a lot of, um, a lot of clues to, to um, the fact that the, the, all this may be a, a fantasy. I mean, all that he says, all that Perini says about Alistair Reed is very plausible because, uh, you know, I knew Alistair Reed enough to, to, to imagine that most of what he says there is, is plausible. Jay Perini describes Alistair Reed, um, you know, baking these uh, hash brownies um, quite, quite often, and, and, um, which, I, which I find plausible because, we, you know, we're, we're in the... Um, uh, I don't know, late uh, 1971, I think it's quite, quite plausible. I, um, I, I can't remember Alistair offering me a hash brownie, but, but uh, maybe he did. <laughs> Well, maybe, that, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the problem. I was about to say if you could remember it, maybe. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing to have uh, Borges um, following hash brownies. And, and, um, but anyway, there, there it is, he does. According to this book, well, uh, I mean, it sounds it sounds like there's the kernel of a story that has just gone completely, just run away, really. Um, 
and, and this book is going to be published in the UK uh, later this year. So the story keeps on coming. Um, David Gallagher, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Still to come on the show, a snippet from an interview with David Bedil about his new book, Jews Don't Count, written, he says, for people who consider themselves to be on the right side of history, and an idiosyncratic roundup of the months watching and listening. If you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, this is a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via pretty much any podcast provider, I think, so you will never miss an episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Anne Summers CEO Jacqueline Gold talks candidly about her parents' divorce and how she coped with a shocking period of childhood sexual abuse. They say the best form of revenge is success, and I believe that. It was just turning something negative into a positive. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Jacqueline Gold, in her own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi. And before we move on to comfort food, and I quote the most wonderful speech never made at Cannes, we've a clip to play you from a conversation between David Bedil, author of the book length essay, Jews Don't Count, and the TLS's politics editor, Toby Lishtig. Toby began by asking what it is about the very word Jew that seems to make people squirm. Yeah, well, we could probably talk, spend the whole podcast talking about that. <laughs> uh, one of the things I've noticed since the book's been knocking about on social media in terms of like me putting out uh, pictures of the cover and talking about it is a few people have said, oh, I don't know whether or not I, you know, I'm interested, but I don't know if I'd be happy reading that in public. It's kind of a provocative title, yes, but I think that's primarily about my sort of unvarnished use of the word Jew rather than Jewish person, although it's interesting how naff it would sound to say Jewish people don't count as a title but Jews don't count have much more power and part of that power is to do with the negativity and the negative energy that I think surrounds the word 
in the book, I talk about this and I quote, actually, um, I take the liberty of quoting a bit from my 2004, is it, novel, The Secret Purposes, uh, which is about the internment of Jewish-German refugees on the Isle of Man, uh, in which a translator, herself not Jewish, is trying to translate a Nazi woman's use of the phrase Judinen. And uh, Judinen, I think, literally means Jewesses, but she can't get the sort of venom that the Nazi said the word into the word Jewesses. And to cut a long story short, in, in that bit, she realises that the way to do it is to, co- is to use the phrase Jew women rather than Jewish women or Jewesses. And I like that because I think it demonstrates how weirdly negative this word still is if you don't grammatically soften it with the suffix ish which in itself is quite funny the idea, the idea you know that ish itself is a kind of a yeah jewish you know, thing yeah. yeah and i've heard people saying i'm jew ish meaning that i'm sort of jewish but you know i wouldn't describe myself as an out and out jew yeah exactly and as i was writing that bit i think it came to me that it's remarkable how the difference between saying a jewish banker uh, a jewish boy between jew banker jew boy that's all you need to make those things Nazi, really, uh, and racist. And no other, there is no other, I can't think of another word uh, that would operate in that way. And I think what that demonstrates is the enormous uh, sort of the singularity, the evil singularity of the word Jew. And I'm using singularity in the kind of physics sense there, that it's packed with the history of its own, uh, the racism of years and years and years and years of Christian scapegoating of Jews as evil. That is why people have to say Jewish. And there isn't really a, another word that I can think of like that. So, yeah, when I when I decided to put my bio on Twitter as being just Jew, I'm aware of that. The weird thing is, it's also quite a funny word. I think for Jews, it's quite funny. Well, it's, I think it, it's, it, you're absolutely right. It's funny. And one of the reasons it's funny is because it's so freighted and because it confuses people. I mean, you know, you know, Jews can embrace it. Non-Jews sort of squirm around and not quite sure what to do about it. And it's exactly that discomfort that you're, you know, you're exploiting with that. Yeah. I um, mean, I guess that's that's more widely what you're, you know, to a certain extent, that, that, that discomfort and that unsureness, that unsureness about where to place Jews is partly what your book's about. I um, mean, it's probably worth just talking a little bit more about precisely what it's aimed at because there are I mean there are loads of books about anti-semitism we've all read different takes on the long and bitter history and you know and more recent examples but yours is a little different it's aimed specifically at a particular group and I just wondered if you could talk a bit about what kind of anti-semitism you're getting at here uh okay well yeah I mean the book in a very rather deliberate way but to try and avoid confusion I suppose uh or misrepresentation uh is a critique, I guess, of progressives or progressive discourse around, specifically progressive discourse around identity politics and around ethnicity. because, Or actually, no, not just ethnicity, ethnicity primarily, but also around minorities. So minorities would also include, I would say, gender minorities and disabled people and all that kind of stuff. So just the sort of like the way in which progressive uh, thinking by progressive I mean more than just the left I mean a kind of wide swathe of people who would consider themselves I guess right thinking and liberal thinking uh, have become much more concerned in over the last 20 years with those kind of issues than they have about class basically that if those people might have defined themselves at one time as being primarily concerned about class and fighting some kind of class struggle, they now are fighting, I would say, more of an identity struggle, uh, which is that all identities that are not white, Christian, mainstream, you know, cisgendered, straight men uh, need to be, the conversation needs to be recentered away from that norm and taking into account the concerns and the identity of these other minorities. And it's those people I'm interested in because it's those people for whom I think Jews still seem ambiguous within that concern. That Jews are still the minority that they still don't quite know what to do with, where to place. Most people think of anti-Semitism in a very direct way. They think of the Nazis, basically, and or, or neo-Nazis or whoever. People who hate Jews want to kill Jews, and it's a very active 
direct form of hatred and and liberals are without doubt still would condemn that and would think it was bad uh but the book is not about that partly because i don't think that needs much deconstruction okay i don't think you know people who hate jews and want to kill jews that their utterances don't need to be deconstructed or thought about much they just need to be resisted what i'm talking about is something much more elusive than that, which is a series of absences, a series of lack of concerns, of uh, being dismissive or not as worried about instances of offence towards Jews, which I believe, and that's the point of the polemic, if those instances were about other minorities, the same people would be up in arms about it. And so it's more about what's missing, it's what's not being said, what's not being applied to Jews, uh, some kind of safety or concern or protectiveness, which uh, progressive people would normally apply, that is not happening to Jews. The full interview will be released as a bonus episode in your podcast feed on Friday. So please do make sure to circle back for that. David Bedil's book, Jews Don't Count, published by TLS Books, will be available from next week. To turn to lighter things, if you're feeling a bit fed up in January, what with the global pandemic, the lockdowns, the weather and all that, we have some ideas here to cheer you up. One of the things we turn to in times like these is food. Not always much else to do these days. And Alice Wadsworth, Deputy Fiction Editor at the TLS, has been listening to food-related podcasts and writing about them for us. And she's here on the podcast to talk to us about podcasts. We are nothing if not meta. Alice, hello, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Um, so what's the what's the first sort of food related podcast that you've been writing about? The first one I look at is The Sporkful, um, which is hosted by Dan Pashman, who's gone through kind of the NPR at this American Life roots of uh, podcasting. Um, and it's a very popular one and kind of looks at the anthropological scientific approaches behind why we enjoy the taste we do and it can it can range it's like it's a nice mix of interviews so LeVar Burton was one of my favorite ones who talks about some recipes he enjoys in his favorite children's books but then also studies into things like how um, certain noises might affect the way we taste things or how colors might affect our taste. Um, Which immediately makes me think of the futurist experiments when they kind of make you eat your dinner while stroking velvet with the sound of a motor droning in your left ear. <laughs> Who made you do that, Fia? <laughs> Not me personally, but Marinetti okay. did. <laughs> but there's a good one, isn't there, about planes? Alice? Yes, that was one I was particularly like obsessed with because it's something I've noticed myself as well with plain food. Like I quite like plain food. A lot of people hate it. I really enjoy it. Um, but apparently it affects... It's the fact that it's not the things you would think... That affect your taste so I would have thought it was the dry cabin air that might affect your tongue or something or the altitude something like that but it's the noise the sound the plane makes affects the umami taste receptors in your tongue and makes them more you know open whereas it suppresses the others kind of like sweet and sour so it makes us more inclined to like something like for example which I put in the piece tomato juice I don't think well first of all I don't think anything would make me want to Tomato juice. <laughs> sort of depends on whether it has vodka and Worcester sauce and celery Not salt. Not even. And, oh, really? <laughs> Is that why they serve it on planes and nowhere else in the world? <laughs> <laughs> I think that must be it. Um, so this is, if it's come from This American Life and NPR, it's, that's kind of podcast royalty, isn't it? And it, it's quite, is, this, is it quite a serious listen, this one? It's kind of telling you things. Yeah, you always come away with lots of different facts to spread about, um, which is great. And it is serious. It bounces between serious and not so serious. So the most recent one, which I didn't include in this particular write-up because it is particularly serious, um, is looking at um, eating disorders and how they affect men. So it can go into really, yeah, proper topics. But then it'll also be quite playful. Uh, usually they'll go on one or two topics. And I particularly like it when Dan Pashman gets a bit Bill Nye the science guy about things. So there's one where um, he sets up an ice cream stand with his daughter um, to 
test out people's responses to essentially the color of the code and things like that um, and see if that's going to change how they enjoy the ice cream. Um, so they do a few little experiments like that, which make it a bit more lighthearted. There's an interesting line about um, about how emotions influence the perception of, of flavor as well. One about a sporting contest. Yeah, yeah, that it is genuinely true that if you lose um, in a game or something like that and then go out for pizza afterwards, like it will taste more sour. They've done studies and it is verified that he will actually be bitter when you lose. But it sort of makes you think that maybe that's how the whole those descriptors became attached to certain things you know feeling sour about something yeah perhaps that's because in ancient times someone realized that there was a you know an, an increase in, in the sourness of things what well, they lost it i've lost my chariot race and now my <laughs> olives taste bitter like that exactly so you're making it sound ridiculous but it's possible <laughs> i was just trying to think of an ancient sport ben hurst brings to mind um and what's the best recipe do you reckon um Alice in that one in the sportful in the sportful I mean I kind of my brain just whirred and stopped on the idea that Patrick Stewart likes eating apple and onion in a sandwich I was hoping you were going to say that because I could not handle that idea at all wow what did he say why (laughs) is it alone or with something else no but uh, like together it just in a sandwich and on set is the other part of it that I find weird because I will there's strange things I'll eat but I won't necessarily bring into the office to eat <laughs> but that is yeah feeling confident enough with your apple and onion to like raw onion not cooked to bring in to the set is yeah. imagine you had a, a love scene afterwards yeah, exactly. I've just I just don't think that's very considerate. I think we're also going to have to have a separate podcast on the things that Alice will eat, but not in the TLS office. Oh, yeah. But not in the office. Oh, there are many. <laughs> it will be called, but not in the well, office. Well, now I've got lots more inspiration from these podcasts as well. <laughs> okay, that's that's our new spin-off. Listen out for it. Um, and the second podcast that you were talking about is is more obviously sort of fun and chat and the rambly, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it's Off Menu, which is... It's a wild, ridiculous dream restaurant. It's James A. Caster, and he's already quite ridiculous. And Ed Gamble, who's a bit more straight man uh, to James A. Caster's kind of... Uh, he plays a genie, James A. Caster. He's more of a genie waiter character who facilitates everyone's dreams and allows them to eat whatever they wish. But, yeah, it's that's more a world of imagination, I guess. It's a bit like Desert Island Discs or something. It's like your ideal meal, but it doesn't have to fit together. Is that yeah, right? it doesn't have to fit together. That's one of the main bits because some people really try and cram it all in. Um, like they'll do a starter that I think it was, I'm not sure who it was. Some people will do a starter, which is just various different dishes from their local Chinese. And then for the main course, we'll go into a Thanksgiving dinner, for example. So I don't think they're necessarily thinking about eating it all in one sitting, but it's just your absolute favourite. We're not judging here. Yeah. (laughs) I was judging the apple and onion sandwich, but I'm not now. (laughs) Yeah. So that one's much chattier, isn't it? Because they, as you say, they know each other already. And they talk to they don't they're not always friends with the people, but they talk to fellow comedians and it's it's um it's more relaxed, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit more kind of silly. Um and then also some people who already like Joe Brand, obviously like they play up humor related to food all the time. So their episode is particularly good as they go into five or six different types of coleslaw. But then when they get down to actually delineating the differences between the different coleslaws they I think they only managed to do four or five rather than six um but they <laughs> I listened to the Joe Brand one and she had Mezzi for her starter yeah. but then took out most of the dishes brilliantly <laughs> yeah so there, was, there, was, there was like she was like well taramas and I quite like hummus <laughs> yeah it's being very very picky is most people also Victoria Corin Mitchell was particularly picky which made both James A. Kester and Ed Gamble very frustrated on the podcast with her plans what's the what's the worst the worst dish or the worst dinner you think from um off menu i mean i it's got to be stuffed hot dog crust pizza (laughs) because like that just it's just too many things in one go is that the, the, the the crust of the pizza has got a hot dog in it yeah the whole it doesn't it doesn't have the the bun in it does it 
No, I think that I think the crust itself is the bun, and then it's cheese, and then hot dogs. That is disgusting. Who the whole thing. who was that? Uh, that was the first episode as well. That was Scroobius Pip on the first episode. So I think he kind of went in there, like put down the gauntlet. Yes, that's a good one. Sphere. <laughs> I'm as I'm, a pizza I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm speechless. I'm so sorry, Sphere. <laughs> It's much worse than a Hawaiian, that, isn't it? It's a whole other level. Yeah, exactly. People are talking about pineapple and then there's hot dog crust. <laughs> I'm fine with a Hawaiian, but not with a hot dog stuffed crust. Um, and then, Alice, you came across one more person, didn't you? Not strictly a podcaster. In your quest, as you say, to break away from, by your own admission, beans on toast and fish fingers, nothing wrong with any of those things. Um, tell us tell us who else you came across. Uh, well, and... in. In my defence, I have been listening to her in a way, I suppose, as much as watching. Um, but this YouTuber I have found called Amelia Fart, who is just... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm almost at a loss for words. They have so many words to describe themselves that it's hard to kind of pin some on them because they are really a bit of a performance artist. They do some cooking videos, some videos that are just telling secrets to strangers or um, having a breakdown in a toilet, for example. But generally the main message, whether it's cooking or anything else, is that they're being very brash, funny, saying whatever comes to their mind. And it's-, it's And a lot like of the things that, sorry, and a lot of the things that they're preparing are to be eaten in strange circumstances, aren't they? Like on a, on a in a hot air balloon or on a Ferris wheel or whatever. Oh yeah specifically so one of the ones I have the recipe I haven't tried is a risotto that looks quite nice that they were doing in a public gym that was obviously pre-covid uh but the one I I've tried which is a really good recipe is one for salmon tartare that they prepare in a library but the thing is to get the recipe you do have to watch the video through which you will not be able to cook along to the first time because she is ridiculous and you'll just be laughing but they they really are in a library yeah it's not a setup is it it's not it's not staged no it's a real library yeah there's um there are parts when there's a bit when you can see someone looking down the aisle like you know the particular part of the library that they're in probably thinking that there's a book that they want down there but maybe I won't go down there because there's a strange woman with a large knife and a bit of fish (laughs) (laughs) who seems to be making salmon (laughs) tartare yeah muttering to the camera and saying as I'm so glad you picked this out because it was one of my favorite lines and she's saying "Uh, no need to give yourself a hard time something like it's not about being perfect it's about being moderately adorable all the time yeah yeah (laughs) and then kind of stage whispering and then occasionally being like am I screaming I think I'm screaming (laughs) yeah well I did as well done you for being able to make the recipes because I wasn't able to um but I very much I very much enjoyed the silliness of it did you did you see it Thea uh I can't I can't say I have (laughs) I will do though I will do I just uh I had never heard of Amelia Fart Um, not her real name I think (laughs) yeah I don't think it is I mean, proceed with caution because you watch one and you will end up watching 10 more. Well, also, we have um, we have to factor into my 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 watching list that you're making for me here uh, that I also have Lucy's things to add to it, because, Lucy, you've written the uh, the televisual side of things this week, haven't you? Yes. So for our audio visual page. So, yes, Alice did the audio and I did the visual uh, and I did call my agent. Um, which has the final fourth and final series has just come out uh, on Netflix. So I um, I wrote about it. I hope without any terrible spoilers. Well, and so I again uh, I I seem to live under a rock uh, increasingly, uh, and I hadn't heard of of this program. So it's it's in its fourth series, the fourth and final. Uh, and it's got is it what is it sort of a cult following thing or or is it is it uh, yeah. bigger than that? I think maybe it was like that and now now it's bigger. I think it's it's sort of gone international now. Um, so obviously it started in France and it's set in a talent agency, uh, actors mostly, in Paris, and is basically about what the the agents get up to on behalf of their actors and every um, episode is called by by just a name just the first name like uh, Julie or Cécile or Jean or something and these are all French actors because um, each episode centers on the um, 
whatever that actor is getting up to and how the agent can get them out of it. So the actor wants to get out of a film and doesn't know how to, or wants to get into a film and doesn't know how to, or that, you know, that doesn't sound very interesting the way I'm saying it, (laughs) but it's, um, it's incredibly, it's very, very funny, apart from anything else, it's very smart. And um, you're just as interested in the agents and what they're doing, possibly more so um, as you are in the actors. And the actors are, they tend to be, real actors playing themselves sort of sending themselves they up. are real they actors. always are yeah, yeah yeah they are yeah so in the first series they are actors that might not be that well known outside uh france though they've got natalie bay in the first one so people might know her and then in you know in the second series well the second s- series ends with juliette binoche um oh so this is the can speech that i referred to earlier yes there's this wonderful thing where she's she's uh, the uh the sort of MC of the Cannes Film Festival. And it begins with her trying on a dress and she comes out in this kind of extraordinary dress. Um, and she, her agent says, it looks like Dalida. You know Dalida, who was a very kind of glam, slightly over the top 70s singer. She says, you look like Dalida. And Juliette Binoche says, yeah, if she had made love with a really, really big swan, because it's got sort of half a swan around it. And she looks sort of quite bonkers, but very glam. She sounds like Bjork. A bit, but yeah, but like as though, she, as though she's tried to do Bjork. Yeah, a bit like that. And then it, and the whole, and, and then you go through the episode and in the end she gives the, the speech at Canberra. Various things have happened backstage to her dress and her shoes and, and everything else. And it's rather brilliant because you watch, you watch her giving the speech and she's forgotten, she stops giving the, the real speech after a while and starts uh, improvising. And at the beginning, it's a car crash and you watch the agents watching it. So we're watching them. Do you see what I mean? There's two removes there. Uh, and you all have the same reaction. At the beginning, you're like, <gasps> and then she starts pulling it round and making this brilliant speech about um, women in film and uh, how wonderful it is and how important it is. And she sort of saves the day and everybody has the same reaction at the same time. And it really shows Juliette Binoche to be a very, very good sport because mostly the actors do not come out of this very well. They make themselves look ridiculous in all sorts of ways. Well, uh, that that sounds like that's my evening sorted. Thank you very much, uh, Lucy. And that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Alice Wadsworth, David Bedeal, Toby Lishtig and David Gallagher. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.